Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you and worship God with you. And at this time, share the word of God with you. As we begin this section and portion of our service, let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. And aid the servant now in bringing forth the word of God, that he may glorify you, and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, that is the first book of the New Testament, verses 26 to 29. And if you have a pew Bible that you can find in the seat in front of you, you can turn to page 781 and join us there. Matthew chapter 6, verses 26 to 29. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the many, for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you, in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Starting from last week and including this week and the following week, we are going through the three marks of the church. And then this week, we're going to focus on communion or the sacraments. Through the Word of God, what has happened 505 years ago and is still going on today, what we call Reformed theology, we have something that is called the marks of the church. The true mark of the church is then ultimately in its submission to the Scriptures. But what does that look like? What does it look like to say that you have now submitted yourself to the Scriptures? And so there is a delineation of sorts that we have seen throughout our Reformed history, and it's most often down to three things, and that means in the very least, this is what it means, in the very least, the church must have these three things to be called a church. And they are, number one, faithful preaching and teaching, number two, faithful administration of the sacraments, and number three, faithful church discipline. In focusing on these marks, the reformers were not saying that all a church needs are these three marks alone. What they intended by listing these was to focus how you could recognize a true church. So if you go to a church, how do you know it's a true church? Because the true church of Christ would have more marks than just these three that I've mentioned. We could name other things like prayer, devotion, fellowship, suffering, love, and so on and so forth. But these aren't always observable marks. 
But the three marks here are there to display the faithfulness of the church. This morning, I would like to go even further to show that these three marks of the church aren't simply delineations from our theology, but it would also lead to the extraction of these other marks that were aforementioned, like prayer, devotion, fellowship, etc. What I, of course, mean by that is that you can't have these three things without the other things that I mentioned. And when you have these three things, you will most naturally see the other things that I've mentioned flow out. And so the first mark that we had gone over last week was the right or faithful preaching of God's word. Faithful preaching is an obvious mark of the church. Without right preaching, you wouldn't have the essential teachings of Scripture. And without a foundation of correct teaching, no group could rightly call themselves a church, let alone a Christian. So how do we know that we are rightly preaching and teaching the Word of God? How do you know that? Because anybody can claim that they are rightly preaching and teaching the Word of God. And so throughout the ages, the church has something called confessions that are meant to help the church differentiate between what was orthodox and heresy. The first Christian confession and creed came out in this context. It was to the loyalty oath imposed by the Roman Empire. Christians in the first century were required to say publicly, Kaiser Kurias. Kaiser Kurias, uh, translated means Caesar is Lord. And while the first century Christians, when they heard this, what they tried to do, as Christians, we tried to render obedience to the government as much as we can. When they heard this, they balked. They could not adhere to this mandate. So in response to the mandate that Christians were given, this was their confession. Jesus o Kurias. Jesus is Lord. That we see in church history as the first confession that the church has made throughout history. And so the great creeds and confessions of church history has been in response to heresy and threats against Orthodox Christian doctrine. Unfortunately, the church today has this very infantile notion that we are not to be political. Two seconds on this thought pattern. Two seconds would leave any believer at an impasse. You can't go on beyond that statement that you can't be political. You can't say Jesus is Lord, and then when it comes to quote-unquote political, Jesus is not Lord. Either he is Lord or he is not. And so when we tackle things like abortion, critical race theory, the BLM neo-Marxist movements, sexual ethics, some might be tempted to think that this is a political issue or a political statement. But it is more importantly a Christian confessional issue. When there are heresies and views that are antithetical to the Word of God, and they sprout up, and we see even professing Christians succumb to these things, how could anyone who truly believes in the Word and loves his neighbor not say anything? We have been duped. And for the last hundred years or so, as long as we've had cornflakes, 
The church has been steadily convinced that we should not talk about anything in the realm of politics. And we claim this realm, but this realm today has been getting larger and larger and larger. And I believe it's because of our ineptness to stand for the truth. We have now come to the place where our fear of COVID had churches following government mandates on how to conduct their church services. This isn't in China, although this is and does happen in China. This was here right in the United States of America when the government is telling the churches, this is how you ought to worship. So watch out when someone says that statement is too political regarding the faithful preaching of God's word. God's word holds dominion over any and every political arena, and that is what faithful Christians have always and will always proclaim. What is primary for the church will always be preaching the whole counsel of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If you don't do this, that means if you don't preach the whole counsel of God, and you're like, well, let's not preach on this one. It seems a little political. If you don't preach the whole counsel of God, you will succumb to unsound teaching. Just a few verses later after this, 2 Timothy 3.16, in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. While sound preaching will bring life to the soul, when you just want to listen to the things that you want to listen to, a.k.a. itching ears, you will, and it says here, turn away. That word turn away means reject. You will reject the truth and you will reject the truth. So as a recap of last week, listening to faithful preaching so that you may be complete, equipped for every good work is pivotal in the life of a Christian. It is a pivotal mark of the church. More on this in a bit, but what then is mark number two? What's the second mark? It's the faithful administration of the sacraments. And so what is a sacrament? As you might be able to deduce yourself, sacra sounds like sacred. So in the word sacrament, it has something to do with being holy. Now these days, some people don't like to use the word sacrament and instead use the word ordinance because it's hard to disassociate the word sacrament with mysticism or ceremonialism. Some people think it's too Roman Catholic. And I thought here, we're supposed to be Protestant. But this is why the study of the Reformation and its reformers are so helpful to us today. The reformers had no fear of using the word sacrament. And if anyone would have been wary of using them in terms that it would give way back to Roman Catholicism, it would have been them. But they did not. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 162, does address this. It says, number 162, what is a sacrament? And this is the answer. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ 
in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another, and to distinguish them from those that are without. We haven't gone to this question yet, but now it's important to distinguish the difference between what the Roman Catholics teach. They teach that there are seven sacraments. The seven sacraments that they teach are baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. But according to the catechism, and according to the catechism of the Catholic Church, second edition, page 293, these sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us, the visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated, signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. In other words, as they would say in the page before, in the, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the sacraments are necessary for salvation. This is what Protestants believe to be sacerdotal. This is a sacerdotal approach to salvation. It is a works-based salvation, and we believe that there is no ritual necessary for salvation. We have been saved by grace alone, sola gratia. In Titus chapter 3, it says this in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our God, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's grace alone. By grace alone, we have been saved. Not by any works, not by any ceremony that we do. It's not by any sacrament that we would be able to follow. But here is verse 8 of that chapter. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So while these works don't save us, works and obedience are not absent from the Christian life. Works proceed from faith. It does not precede faith. So it proceeds from faith. It does not precede faith. You don't do works to be saved, but you are saved to do works. This is the difference, I believe, between heaven and hell. It's such an important difference. No work that you can do will save you. If we could have attained some kind of works-based salvation, then there would be no need for a Savior. You wouldn't need a Savior if you could attain this on your own, by your own merits. Maybe you would need a life coach, but not a savior. A counselor, maybe, but not a savior. Maybe you need a hype man, but not a savior. What we recognize is that in our utterly depraved state, we need a savior. And it is through Christ, his word and his spirit, that we are now equipped to do good works. Now that I've said all this, since sacraments 
are not necessary for salvation, do we have to do them? Do we have to do them? And the answer is yes. Your works are a sign of your obedience to God. Again, while your works do not save you, saved people do good works. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter 4. It's a little long, so you can't turn with me if you want to read along with me. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 to 32, it says this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So it starts with the word therefore. So what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, since you are now a Christian. Since you are now a Christian, you ought to do all these things. So then how important are these sacraments? The answer is incredibly important because it is our Lord Jesus who instituted them for us to adhere to. Now the Protestant church does not have seven. We believe that Jesus clearly and most obviously instituted two sacraments. The first one is baptism, and scriptural support can be found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." I'd like to add, what a political statement that Jesus said. All nations, everything that I commanded you, oh my goodness. And so Jesus instructs his disciples to make disciples and to baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here is the astounding part. This is astounding. Jesus nowhere explains what he means by that. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, this is how you should baptize. He does say, this is how you should pray, but not how you should baptize. That is astounding, especially in our day and age, because people ask, how should you baptize? Nowhere does Jesus say how we should baptize. Now here is something even more astounding. Nowhere in the Bible does it say the disciples were confused about what Jesus was commanding. They weren't, they weren't like interjecting, uh, Jesus, Lord, what do you mean by baptism? Do you mean dunking, sprinkling, dousing? Nowhere do you see in the Bible them being confused. So it would seem to me then they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, 
and there was a basic understanding of what baptism meant when Jesus said, go and baptize. In the Old Testament, because remember, the New Testament was not written yet, right? So remember, the New Testament wasn't written yet, so yes, the understanding of baptism in the Old Testament. Now, I don't have time to go over every instance of baptism in the Old Testament. I'll go over mainly two or three passages which I think can cover what Jesus and disciples understood what baptism to mean. Again, if you want to go into a deeper kind of whole of what baptism is, we do have a podcast on baptism out there for you to listen to. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It's called the Septuagint because Septuagint means 70, and there are 70 scholars who would translate the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament into Greek in the third century BC. This is significant because even Jesus quotes from the Septuagint. In the Greek translation of the OT, there is a word for baptize. It's called baptizo. And this was in reference to ceremonial washing. Ceremonial washing. In 2 Kings chapter 5, when Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, was told by the prophet Elisha to wash himself in the Jordan to cleanse himself from the leprosy that he had in verse 10. In verse 14, it says that Naaman baptized himself in the Jordan. That's baptizo, baptism then, and ceremonial washing. Because in verse 10, it said wash. In verse 14, it says baptize. But these are the same things they were used interchangeably. And so when we turn to the Old Testament, here are just two passages on which talk about ceremonial washing. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 to 21, the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet. So here it is, washing, a ceremonial washing in Exodus. In Leviticus chapter 14, verse 9, it also says, On the seventh day he shall, this is for leprous people, on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, water and he shall be clean. So if we start to take all the examples of ceremonial washing in the New Testament, and the baptism of Naaman in the Jordan, we see that the Jews of the first century would have seen baptism as a sort of ceremonial washing. In this way, the water that is applied or the mode of baptism is less important than the meaning behind it. I'll say it again. The water that is applied or the mode of baptism is less important than the meaning behind it. When Jesus commands baptism to his disciples, then baptism takes on an added significance from the Old Testament. It is an outward, ceremonial washing with water, just as it was in the Old Testament. However, now it is to be administered to every disciple of Jesus Christ as an outward sign of God's covenant with them. And the signs of the covenant are, are to be taken in faith, just as Abraham took the sign of the covenant of circumcision in Romans 4, 11, the sign of the covenant of baptism is a mark that one receives to signify that he or she has been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and now they have right standing with God. So it acts as a sign. Baptism is a sacrament that acts as a sign of the covenant. 
And according to Paul, the sign of the covenant also acts as a seal. So that is why we say baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of God that he has made with his people. And this is what it means to be a seal. So first there's a sign. A sign means it's showing people what has actually happened. A seal is formed when, let's say, a signet ring from a high-ranking official presses on the hot wax that is placed on a document. What that does is it guarantees the authenticity of the object on which the seal was placed on. So by receiving the seal in faith, those that belong to the Lord are marked in a visible way that confirms your rightful place as an heir to God. So is baptism a big deal? Absolutely. It is a sacrament that must be rightly administered. But if you are a Christian in obedience to Christ, you receive the sign and seal of baptism and thereby show the world your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what about the sacrament of communion? What is communion? What is the Lord's Supper? And here, the Westminster Larger Catechism also answers in question 168 and asks, what is the Lord's Supper? And this is the answer. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the new covenant in which by and giving, receiving bread and wine according to the pattern set up by Jesus Christ, his death is shown forth. Those who worthily take part, feed on his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace, have their union and communion with him confirmed, and testify and renew their thankfulness and commitment to God and their mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same mystical body. This sacrament also is commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ to keep. It is instituted at the time of Passover before our Lord was crucified. The Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper is also known as the Eucharist. The Eucharist means to give thanks. And just as the Passover was celebrated in anticipation of the Egyptian oppressors, remember, they celebrated Passover before they were delivered. Holy Communion is celebrating our ultimate deliverance from sin and death. And so Jesus specifically commands his disciples to carry on the sacrament by saying, do this in remembrance of me. So what are the elements in the Lord's Supper? We are to take the bread and wine, in some cases grape juice, set it apart. That means it was meant for common use, but for this occasion it is set apart and it is set apart by the words of the institution, thanksgiving, and prayer. We have these three specific elements when we partake in the Lord's Supper. And we take up the pattern set forth for us by Jesus Christ by taking the bread first and then the cup, by doing these things in remembrance of Him. By us calling the Lord's Supper a sacrament, we are also saying that the Lord's Supper acts as a sign and seal of the new covenant and exhibits the benefits of Christ's mediation. So number one, how is it a sign? Really quickly, the bread and wine signify Christ crucified and its benefits. The bread is a sign of Christ's body given for us, and the wine is a sign of Christ's blood shed or poured out for us. How is it a seal? And here again, the Westminster Larger Catechism answers it 
It says what we read before, those who worthily take part, feed on his body and blood to their nourishment and growth in grace, have their union and communion with him confirmed. So as we partake in the sacrament in faith, the reality of the benefits that Christ has promised is guaranteed and authenticated when we partake in the Lord's Supper. And so is the Lord's Supper a big deal? The answer is absolutely. The first sacrament was baptism. By being baptized, we are exhibiting our faith in Jesus Christ's lordship over us. Baptism is a sign and seal we receive after we know that we are justified. And the sacrament of communion is where we have a sign and seal on Jesus Christ's spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. That's sanctification. So you need both justification and sanctification to have salvation. And when you have justification and sanctification, the promise is that one day we will have glorification. One day we will have glorified bodies just as Christ did when he, the first fruits of the resurrection, rose again from the grave on the third day. This is why these are pivotal marks, or the sacraments are a pivotal and crucial mark of the church. The church must faithfully administer these sacraments to be a church. If you don't, while you may call yourself a church, it may very well be like the churches in the book of Revelation, where Christ casts them out and takes their lampstand from them. It is no small thing we are taking into consideration when we consider the sacraments. It is no small responsibility that the church has when it administers the sacraments. It is incredibly important that the church discerns who is able to partake in the sacraments. And this example will lead us into the third mark, which we'll go over more extensively next week. But as far as communion is concerned, this is one part that we ought not to forget, we ought to remember. Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter, in this in chapter 11, he writes about communion. In chapter 11, verse 23, and this is what I actually read too before we open the table. This is what it says in chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is a long passage, and I want to explain a little bit about what this context was. 
Even when we read it in the Westminster Larger Catechism, the question should arise when we partake in these sacraments, especially when it comes to communion, how does one partake in it in a worthy manner? Because if you don't take the communion, if you don't take it in a worthy manner, you're taking it in an unworthy manner, and therefore you are putting judgment on yourself. The scriptures say this clearly. And so how does one partake in a worthy manner? First, we must discern the body. And what does that mean? What does it mean to discern the body? And looking at this context, it would mean at least two things. One, you cannot be participating in outward unrepentant sin that would stumble another person on account of the testimony that you made. You can't proclaim Christ is king and then spit on his face. Now, there is a difference between understanding that we, as a sinner, humbly come to receive the bread and wine because we are at the tender mercies of God for our spiritual nourishment. Between that and someone who is outwardly, meaning blatantly blaspheming God with their actions, even worse, if they call themselves a Christian while doing this, this is why I remind you before I administer the sacrament, that if you are in outward, unrepentant sin not to take communion, repent first, turn back from your sins. Otherwise, when you take the bread and cup, you drink judgment on yourself. You are heaping more judgment and punishment on yourself when you do this according to the scriptures. So as a pastor, this is what we call fencing the table. We fence the table to preserve the integrity of the table, but to also save you from further heaping of judgment on yourselves. And by coming up to take the bread and cup, you are effectively saying to me, Pastor Eugene, I am not in outward unrepentant sin. Instead, I come with a humble heart, knowing that if I am not fed by our Lord Jesus Christ first through his word and then the sacrament, I will go home hungry. And this is why if I or any of the elders know of a rebellious heart in any of our members, we will preemptively bar you from the table. Now that I've said that, here's the second part of what discerning the body is or taking communion in an unworthy manner, what that means. And let me preface this part by saying that I think that this is by far the more dangerous and worse of the two. And you like, wow, that last one was pretty bad. But I think this is even more dangerous and worse. It is in one sense a part of the first example that I've mentioned, outward unrepentant sin, but it is far more dangerous than the others. And it is overtly condemned in the Bible. It is perhaps elusive only because sometimes we just see what we want to see. So what is it? And here it is. I'm going to read the verses before Paul gives us the words of institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. From verse 17, it says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I shall, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You can see he's starting to get heated by even thinking about what is happening in the church. Discerning the body here would mean discerning your relationship with everyone in the body, in this church. This is not an individualistic examination that we are only to do when we examine ourselves before communion. What we are to do is a whole body check. The question is, are you okay with the brother or sister next to you? Are you okay with them? If not, are you causing divisions? Are you causing divisions through anger? failed fellowship, selfishness, then in your discerning of the body, you are not worthy to take the Lord's Supper. That's what the Bible is saying. By doing these things, by doing these things, you are actually despising the church of God, and the Lord's Supper is an invitation by God to partake in the fellowship with Him and His church. By partaking in the Lord's Supper, you're not just going, whoop, here me, me and God, that's it. What you are doing is you are seeing this invitation that God is bringing together. His whole church is coming together. So you are having fellowship with God and with one another. You cannot despise someone and eat with them. In the same way, you cannot promote division in the church and partake in the Lord's Supper. So in your examination, that's what it means, check your body. Do you have outward unrepentant sin? Stop committing that sin. Turn back to Christ and then partake in the Lord's Supper. Check your body in the sense where you check your relationship with the others in this church body. And here is Christ on, the, on anger. This is Matthew chapter 5. This is the beginning of his teaching. And he thinks this is so serious. He starts his teaching off with this. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, again, this is judgment. People are fearing judgment, rightfully so, because the Lord is a righteous judge. To be judged under his righteousness is something to be feared. But here's what Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. For those who have been reconciled to Christ, we must understand by this Grace, we are also reconciled to one another. He does say there needs to be some kind of division, some kind of faction. You need to find out what is true and what is false. Who is a true believer? Who is a false believer? That kind of factions must exist. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 11. However, these other worldly secular factions, the things that are not pertaining to what the scriptures say, you're just angry for whatever reason, you are selfish for whatever reason, you think about yourself more than others for whatever reason, that is liable to judgment. He's saying, don't take the bread, don't take the cup, lest you drink and eat judgment 
on yourselves. So it seems that sinning against other Christians and not repenting is a failure also to discern the body. And that's why it goes beyond all that to include all impenitent sins. That means all outward unrepentant sins you should not partake lest you eat and drink judgment on yourselves. This is a very, very fearsome and awesome sacrament that we are partaking in. This is not just some small thing that we do. It's called sacrament because it is supposed to be taken with this kind of heaviness. Last week we talked about preaching and people did come up to me and say, wow, this is really serious stuff that we hear rightly the Word of God preached. Otherwise, this is about the salvation of our souls. We could be damned by continuing to learn and adhere to false doctrine. And the answer is yes, it's that serious. These marks are not just some small marks. But just as that is serious, so is this mark of the sacraments. They must be rightly and faithfully administered. And so who are the sacraments for? How can they be rightly or faithfully administered? The sacraments are for Christians, not for perfect people. We must not confuse repentance with perfection. It is sinners who come to the table. It's sinners who are baptized. It's repentant sinners who are baptized that can partake in communion. And that's what the makeup of the church should look like. Not perfect people. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a perfect church. But the church is made up of sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. These are people who have turned away from sin and now are turning to the true God. That's what we mean by putting our faith in Jesus as our Savior. People who have turned and are turning away from what is sin to now what is true, what is noble, what is pure, what is beautiful, what is commendable by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know Jesus Christ to this degree as your Lord and Savior, this is what the Scriptures admonish you to do. Turn away from loving the world because those things will continue down in the path to bitterness. The more bitter you are, the more you know you are going to hell. And what the gospel shows us that through Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, we can now turn to God and have the peace of Christ rule over you. What a wonderful gift we've received when we understand the gospel, the true gospel, of Jesus Christ. We hate the sin that causes death, that causes damnation, that leads us down into a path of bitterness, and we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can start to love the things that are good, what is righteous, what is pure, what is noble, what is true. And so for us, by faithfully administering the sacraments, what we are doing is that we are proclaiming the true gospel for the world to see. This is a mark that the church must have, and we must not take it lightly. We take it seriously. We take it with much heaviness for the integrity of the table, but for the glory of our Lord Jesus and for the love of those that are present here this morning, for the love of our neighbors. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your holy institutions of baptism, 
and the Lord's Supper. We understand that this is a serious matter, that we are not to take it lightly or willy-nilly, that we are to take it with the seriousness you have given these ordinances to us with. And so now, as the scriptures exhort us, admonish us, help us to examine ourselves, and so be right with you in all the ways you have commanded us to be. Let's take this time to pray. And let's take this time to ask the Lord to reveal to us if there is a sin that we are unrepentant of, to repent of those sins, to hate the sin that defiles, that confines, that imprisons, that causes death. And now by the power of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit, to love the things that give life, that are good, that are beautiful. Let's take this time to pray.